Hello, and welcome to Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Melissa Pitati, and this podcast is part of an initiative I'm working on with Marianne Clements, which is being hosted by the CHS Alliance. Our work looks at the intersections between mental health, people management, and organizational culture using the lens of care and compassion. Today, in our final episode of the season, you'll hear me talk with Gisele Balteva and Adrian Murate of the CHS Alliance Secretariat. I wanted to talk with them because CHS Commitment 8, the one that explicitly focuses on supporting staff to do their job effectively and treating them fairly and equitably, inspired me to get involved with this initiative in the first place. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So I would like to welcome to the podcast, Adrienne Murete and Gazelle Baltaiva. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining. Um, before we get started, I would like to invite you both to introduce yourself and what you do at the CHS Alliance. Who would like to start? I can start okay. uh, easy. So my name is Gozel Baltaiva. As Melissa just said, I'm the people management advisor of the CHS Alliance and point of contact for tailored support on all HR and people management topics for our members. So that includes tools, guidances on any uh, relevant or needed uh, people processes. And I'm also a happy conductor of an annual human resources, um, humanitarian human resources conference. Thank you. And uh, good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Um, so my name is Adrien Murate and I'm the CHS verification manager at the CHS Alliance. I'm the, also the, I'm the entry point for our members who would want to uh, discuss or work on the verification of their organization against the, the, the nine commitments of the CHS. That includes um, uh, maybe a discussion on what verification option is the best for your organization, whether it's a self-assessment or, or a certification, in which case I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to redirect you to our colleagues HKI, um, the Humanitarian Quality and Assurance Initiative, uh, or if it's a self-assessment, uh, to work with the organization to uh, go through the steps uh, and, and the tools of the self-assessment and then analyze the results uh, and, and then, you know, to bridge them, link them to my colleagues like Gozelle in the program team who will be able to give them tailored support. So um, the first question I have is going to Gazelle, and it's about commitment eight of the core humanitarian standard. And I'm asking this because I wasn't very familiar with it um, until relatively recently and I felt when I was learning about it, there's so much that's relevant that people should know. So could you just explain for our listeners who might not be aware, what is commitment eight of the standard? Sure, Melissa, very glad to do that. The core humanitarian standard on quality and accountability sets out nine commitments that organizations and individuals involved in humanitarian response can use to improve the quality and effectiveness of the assistance they provide. The commitment eight that you're asking about of the CHS requires that communities and people affected by crisis receive the assistance they need from competent and well-managed 
staff and volunteers or all those who work for an organization who uh, delivers the aid. Like online commitments, the commitment aid consists of key actions and organizational responsibilities. When you look at it um, in the CHS booklet, um, and these key actions and organizational responsibilities, they describe what staff should deliver and the policies, processes and systems that organizations need to have in place to enable that, to enable staff to deliver. So organizational responsibility 8.9 in particular, I think is very relevant uh, for our discussion because it um, requires organizations to have policies in place for the security and the well-being of staff. So for the CHS Alliance, it is a, as a result, a membership requirement for our members to have policies in place for the security and well-being of their staff. So why is this commitment important? You were asking, or why is the CHS, you know, as a standard or CHS Alliance is concerned about aid worker well-being? So there are two answers. The short answer is because, uh, well, you know, as we all know, staff, um, staff and volunteers, um, uh, implementing partners, they're crucial. I would even say indispensable to the delivery of meaningful um, and high quality assistance. And ultimately, if people are not treated well, and if they're not feeling well, they're not well, then they cannot serve well. So to fulfill the CHS organizations must support staff and volunteers to do their job effectively and to treat them fairly and equitably. A long answer, I think, <laughs> uh, is that it's not only about meeting the CHS, but also fulfilling organizations' um, duty of care. Uh, which in essence is a legal and moral obligation of an organization to take all possible measures to reduce the risk of harm to those working for or operating on behalf of an organization. So this will include staff, typically volunteers, interns, contractors, like we can sometimes in the field, we outsource some of, you know, um, some of the uh, staff that we need, uh, like guards or drivers and implementing partner organizations. So I think employee well-being is really um, important because all, all organizations finally realize or start realizing the uh, power it has to transform transform their employees' lives, reduce costs related to absenteeism or presenteeism and healthcare, and create healthy uh, and safe organizational cultures. Ooh, I like, uh, I like that, create safe and healthy cultures. Um, do you want to say more about what, what a safe and healthy culture might look like in an organization? Yes, I think uh, maybe just, uh, you know, whenever we start speaking about cultures, people get scared because um, cultures, it's something that is so difficult to change. And it's usually referred to as a big, big boat or ship that is very difficult to turn around and it takes time, but it's possible. And that's, I think, that's a hope we should all um, have. And I think uh, to change a culture, everyone needs to uh, contribute. So for, for having healthy and safe cultures, I think, um, you know, very easy ingredients. I think it's really support 
and the one of the first ingredients would be support and that support should come and be provided to all employees throughout levels um, and it should there should be leadership support for um, healthy and safe culture and that health and safety of employees should be you know coming as a message from top down but also um, you know laterally um, uh, throughout the organization. So I really think for me, it's um, about support and to have that support, to have that intention of wanting to um, create um, healthy and safe cultures. I also think that it's about um, trust. And um, if you remember, Melissa, last year we've been our uh, HHR um, of 2019 was uh, dedicated entirely to the question of building trust. And I think trust is another ingredient that I believe that is important of um, nurturing, uh, building on, um, uh, so that people also feel safe to speak about their problems and that, um, you know, these problems um, are taken also seriously. And that's is a, a third, third ingredient for me is really like communication, but communication should be two ways, meaning that we should not only communicate on the, you know, the support that is provided and how serious or how important the health and well-being of um, employees are to the organization, but also actively listening and creating that um, environment where we can listen and we can actively listen and respond to the needs and uh, support people better. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the word trust. Because one of the things, um, Adrian, you're doing with the verification <clears throat> support is supporting a system where organizations can be trusted to do the right thing, but also verified. So it's a nice balance. And Gazelle um, have just talked about organizational responsibility 8.9, which I think with the verification options that you mentioned at the beginning, I think that is being tracked. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing around the verification data when it comes to 8.9 specifically as it relates to what we're talking about today with well-being? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and yes, very much agree with the idea that verification is building trust. That's, I think that's one of the lines that uh, HKI is using. But yes, definitely uh, trust not coming not being something that comes you know, that is granted like this for free but but coming that, that, that comes something that is being built uh, through verification yeah. and, and just maybe one comment on, on coming back to what what Gozel said I, I I think it's really important to to see people management to see the dual aspect of people management in the CHS uh, uh, being as as Gozel described being uh, a very important a dedicated commitment and as and one of the nine CHS commitments. Um, we could argue that some indicators outside of commitment eight also fall into the, the, the uh, area of, of people management. They're talking about trust and the culture of organization. There's one in, in, interesting indicator in commitment four about the, uh, about the, um, uh, the culture of open communication uh, that organization need to um, so, so policies and for information sharing are in place and promote a culture of open communication. That's indicator 4.5. Um, that's also a key one when we look at the culture within the organization. But so you just, yes, this, this dual aspect of people management being an issue in itself, being important in itself, and being also an enabler for the commitments. Because as, as Gozel said, um, uh, staff need to be trained, staff need to be uh, healthy, uh, including 
in their minds uh, in order to be able to deliver uh, the other uh, commitments in their work. So um, what is verification data telling us on, on commitment eight and on particularly on, on the indicator 8.9 generally? So just to, to uh, a quick reminder of the, of the context uh, on verification data, um, Gozel said, 8.9 is an organizational responsibility. So we have two types of indicators within each of the commitments. Some are key actions, things that need to be done at project level in the field when you deliver assistance, and some that are systems and policies that organizations should have in place to ensure that the key actions basically happen systematically. The 8.9 is of the second category. It's about the systems that the organization should have in place. Um, and, and what the data is telling us we, we could look at, you know, data from self-assessment or data from uh, independent verification or certification. But in that case, what's interesting is that there is a very small difference and all sources of, of data are telling us the same thing. It's a score between 2.5 and 3. That means, uh, according to our scoring grid, that this is an area that is being looked at systematically. The efforts being made by organizations that are being verified show that the efforts made are systematic, but not all key areas of that indicator are covered. What makes uh, this indicator on, on staff security and well-being a little bit complex, it's not the only indicator in the CHS being like this. What makes it, what makes it a bit, little bit complex is the, is the different components of the indicator. And having looked at the, the responses from organizations uh, before we have the discussion. Um, obviously, security is something that is being looked at maybe even more systematically than well-being, and maybe it's on well-being that there is still a little bit more efforts, and I'm taking that really from the, the, the narrative answers that, 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 come with the, that come with the score uh, uh, of or that organizations get. Um, security is, of course, something that you know it comes uh, straight away for organization when they operate in the field uh, well-being is something that they are becoming more and more aware of their need to do it including as Gozel described before including for you know very uh, objective reasons of you know if you want the, the operation to work you need you need people to be you need people to be healthy what the, uh, in, i looked at the challenges that were being mentioned by organizations responding to their self assessment and and you often have this this two two things that come uh, come back and it's one is the difficulty when you work with partners to ensure that this uh, requirement is <clears throat> being taken through uh, the partnership agreements and being looked at through the partnership agreements to ensure that it happens through the work of the partners as well. Um, uh, and the second is um, the difficulties that are inherent to working in the field in some difficult locations where you know, security is, is, is a challenge, access is a challenge, everything is a challenge basically. So um, that this, but, but, but again, some systematic efforts being made some mm -hmm. key areas still not covered. And I believe that looking at this component, those areas are more towards well-being and, and security. Uh, so just to clarify for our listeners, when we look at organizational responsibility 8.9, it's really a focus when you're doing the verification that there are policies in place for the security and well-being of staff, not necessarily that security and well-being is manifested at a certain level, but that at least the organization has made an effort to put policies in place. Is that right? 
that's a... that's correct that's correct that's correct and and to be to be fair in the in the scoring gate there's also an element of um, um, system is is developed system okay. is in place and training efforts are being made but indeed the translation of those efforts and the translation of that of the systems into concrete action in the field is not in the remit of an organizational responsibility it's in the key actions thank you for putting that into context I would like like to go back to Gazelle because you mentioned at the top of the interview that you're supporting every year the Humanitarian Human Resource Conference. Last year, it was focused on trust. Uh, this year, I don't know if there was an overarching theme, but the theme I remember the most was about well-being. Maybe I'm wrong because I'm biased. Um, but do you mind to talk about what you heard at that event, it was very recently about human resource practitioners from around the sector. What are they hearing as it comes to aid worker well-being? Because it would be nice to see that in juxtaposition from the data that Adrian's describing. So yes, we um, we are CHS Alliance has inherited, in fact, the humanitarian human resources conference from people in aid, and these um, conferences they take um, they take uh, place since 2003 so it's um, I think in uh, in two years we can celebrate 20 years anniversary but um, this year we have hosted our very first in fact virtual humanitarian human resources event and it was it took place from uh, 3rd to 6th November so to answer your question about what what we were hearing during the HH hour at least, during that first day when uh, we were speaking about employee well-being, we've heard so many things. And I think um, I am still reviewing those sessions because um, it's just amazing the number and the amount of information that has been shared uh, and uh, the wealth, in fact, of knowledge that we can gain from uh, from these uh, contributors so i'm i'm still i'm still reviewing and re-listening to those sessions and learning uh, something new every time but what really stood out for me was that there was um you know i think covid what covid did covid really put an emphasis on mental well-being i think more than ever before I think uh, we heard um, a lot um, uh, that, you know, those feelings of loneliness, isolation uh, that people were having, that this was just uh, all around the world and something that we have never, never seen uh, before. I think that, um, you know, we, we knew already uh, from reading different literatures and hearing um, experts that um, there would be long-term um, impacts on the health of employees by COVID and that um, we should uh, really uh, start uh, looking into uh, preventing um, those impacts as soon as possible. I think what we heard as well is that, um, you know, that policies um, should be fair and, you know, that they should also be equitable. And uh, what we heard is that um, it's been also an eye-opener 
to see that uh, some international staff had um, benefits that were not uh, extended to our national staff. In cases where it was, you know, extended to both national and international, then it was implementing partners who were left out. So, um, you know, I think it was a good, um, a good um, sort of an eye-opening moment where all HR and all organizations, they have, um, they had to review because they didn't have any choice. They had to review their plans, their um, contingencies, their how do they work? How do they ensure business continuity? Um, how do they do that remotely? Um, um, and I think uh, that's where also for many, they've, took, they've taken that opportunity to put the employee well-being back on the table and I think they they've used that opportunity and whereas some others I think they're still um, uh, getting uh, some traction and I hope that uh, you know what they have heard and the strategies that they have heard uh, could help them um, have a progress in uh, this important um, domain of um, our lives. That, that um, really resonates with the research that we did last year for the Working Well report. Um, this idea that the way staff are treated, if it's not fair, if it's not equitable, it creates a dynamic that contributes to um, challenges with regard to, to well-being. So that's interesting to see it came up. And it's also heartening to hear that COVID silver lining has been that it's prompting organizations to self-reflect. In that regard, I'm curious, what do you hear are the main requirements that organizations have? They're all struggling to adapt to COVID. There's constant reminders every day about the inequity uh, in the systems. Are there some clear asks coming out in terms of what organizations within the Alliance would like in terms of support to do the right thing by their staff? Yeah, I think I think if you look at CHS and if you look at the guidance notes and indicators under 8.9, I think this indicator could be um, improved uh, by looking at three things. Um, and um, one being the policies that I've just mentioned. So I think uh, ensuring that staff policies are fair, that they are non-discriminatory, that you know, specific policies also exist for security and well-being or safety and well-being of employees. So it's really important that um, staff uh, policies exist, you know, and that there is um, policies that cover um, well-being of employees. So and the key here, I think, is really making sure that staff understand both the policies applicable to them and also responsibilities flowing from them, you know, and that uh, those responsibilities, I think, uh, should be very clear, like what is leadership responsible for, what um, um, HR is responsible for, what, uh, you know, do we have a resource and then can we invest in a well-being person and what that well-being person will be doing? Um, do we have some other people who um, managers, what their responsibilities concerning the well-being of their teams and finally as well what your individual responsibility is concerning your self-care your health and um you know and that's also something that we heard during hhr um this year is that oxygen mask or that metaphor of the oxygen mask that you can't take 
care of others if you don't take care of yourself. So the self-care is really important and it came, it, it was mentioned many, many times that we should learn how to self-care. We should also teach people how to, you know, we should provide uh, training for people to uh, teach them how to self-care. So, and second, second, I think, um, um, element that I wanted to mention around the indicator improvement or, or requirements, basically, is really to make sure that those well-being activities, benefits, um, you know, um, and God knows there are so many, so that's why it's a big job, but all of them should really uh, be applicable to all staff or all those who are involved in, um, you know, in the organization. So it should be nationally recruited, internationally recruited, HQ, uh, name it. Like this well-being activities should be uh, up, really extended to everyone. It should not, there should not be preferences or should not be just because, you know, these people don't travel or these people, I don't know what. And I think it's also that the activities and approaches should be appropriate for the context and the nature of the organization. So, so one size, you know, doesn't fit all and we know it, we heard it, but sometimes we just take what people or other organizations do and we think it will be great. And that's where, again, I think what has been mentioned during HHI is really listening and um, um, calling for and listening to the needs of your staff, asking what will be helpful, asking, uh, what do they need to be healthy and what, you know, what help, what support do they, do they need and then providing it to them. Ensure, and I think the last one, the third one that I, I um, so I promised to say three. Uh, so the third one will be really about um, skills development learning and development, you know, and that to make sure that everything that is around well-being is communicated, but also there is enough resources, enough training, enough support to bring everyone to the same level of understanding what well-being is, what well-being is at work, and how everyone can contribute to building healthy and safe cultures. And I think now that we have, we are working remotely or what COVID also has shown us is that we, um, we can bring these things uh, online, we can uh, translate them to as many languages as we need and, and really make sure that um, again, uh, you know, bringing, creating that space uh, for discussing, for uh, voicing um, our needs and our challenges at work. Thank you for that. As you were talking, I was remembering uh, an interview we did recently with Brenda McDonald, who was overseeing staff responding um, to a situation in Iraq at the Yazidis and there were people getting beheaded. And he asked his uh, line management, how can I support my team? And he was provided with some tips about yoga. So this kind of idea of what you're saying is the support provided to staff is contextually appropriate and you find if it's contextually appropriate by asking staff what they need, which is quite nicely linked up to this idea that the core standards promoting um, engagement with affected populations from the outset. So that really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, to close our discussion today, I'd like to look forward. Um, I understand that there may be a process that will come up to reflect on the core humanitarian standard and improve it. I'm not sure if I have that lingo correct, but um, I've 
be interested to hear from both of you in light of what we've learned so far, um, what are your hopes looking forward as more organizations take up this standard and as the standard evolves over time to incorporate what we've learned? Uh, who would like to start? Adrian. My wish list. A standing item, I think, on my wish list has been for a couple of years, but I will add a second one. But, but the first one is, is certainly that more organizations complete a verification against the CHS for, and, and for the basic reason that I, I, I fundamentally believe that this is, this is a good process to learn and improve based on, on, on solid findings uh, for, from, from your staff, from your partners, from, your, from, from communities you're working with, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, verification as, a, as, a, as, a, as an excellent learning and improvement tool, I, I, I strongly encourage as many organizations as possible to, to, to start by this, including with just a self-assessment. It's not just a self-assessment. Um, but also my, my second item on the wish list is, is connected a little bit to, to the question you asked Gazelle before about um, what, what, what organizations ask. Um, and I think in, when it comes to verification, there is more and more this request for uh, verification to be recognized by donors. Um, uh, Gozelle mentioned the, 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 the need for resources. Um, the, you know, this is, this is very concrete, but, but yes, so it, it also comes down to resources being available or not uh, to, to, to ensure staff security, to ensure staff well-being. And organizations, you have, you have some organizations, let's, say, let's put it like this, you have some organizations who do make the efforts, um, some organizations who through verification you can clearly recognize as making the efforts, uh, achieving, you know, fulfilling those requirements. Um, and I think it's, it's at some point on, it's, it's important that, that donors recognize that and give those, these, give those organizations um, uh, some kind of, of recognition, some kind of preferential access to funding, because we know that those, those organizations are the ones who are most likely to not put the people at risk and to ensure you know, good quality of work through safety uh, and, and security and safety and, and, and healthiness of the, of the staff that work with them. Very nice. I was just interviewing someone this morning, one of the members of the Alliance, he said, of all the budget lines he has, the three that are the hardest to raise money for are quality and accountability, staff safety and security, and staff well-being. And I was interested that those are the three he bundled together when he was looking at um, the difficulty to attract resources. So it fits nicely with what you're saying there. How about Gazelle, what, what are your hopes for the future? I think mine will be a bit longer because I would like to just remind again um, about the well-being and what it is, and um, and um, it will be really about employee well-being importance. And I think what's um, maybe something that also um, we have discussed um, in every discussion we had on the first day of the HHR, it was really about the the perception of well-being, the you know, and what is well-being. And I think usually. Traditionally, we focus on health benefits that employers provide, and that usually would resume the employee well-being for many, many years. And I think that it's also uh, we, um, you know, we always thought that it's really about absenteeism and just like measuring that. Well, 
Today, we know that it's more than that. It, it's more than just the absence of illness among employees. And I think what, what's really important about employee well-being is really optimizing the health of all employees and looking at it holistically. And that's what we also did during the first year, uh, first day of the HHR. We looked at the, we looked at the employee well-being holistically and it's really not only about physical well-being there is financial well-being there is a mental well-being there is the way of uh, collaborating and uh, so many leadership uh, communication there's so many components of well-being that cannot be ignored when speaking about healthy and well-being um, or well-functioning individuals or employees so in other terms I, what i'm trying to say is that employee well-being term has expanded from traditional viewpoint, and um, and nowadays we're looking, you know, at um, many more things um, when we look at employee well-being. And I think that um, employers should also, for why, for me, my wish is that employers um, expand, you know, um, and our members, especially in particular, our members, that they expand their understanding of well-being from that traditional term to a more holistic approach and that they start applying, they start looking into how can and what can they change um, in, uh, you know, in their workplace to address the well-being from different fronts and to look at it from also multiple perspectives. So I think that's for me an invitation to all members uh, really to um, to do that. And I also think that, um, you know, very often what we notice is that there is a gap or there is an implementation gap that, you know, with many organizations embracing, not yet embracing the health and well-being agenda to full effect. So that's for me is a second wish is also to, I think, if they expand their understanding, they will be able and they will be um how to say, I think that they will be even proud that they, you know, to realize how, how many things they can do to uh, embrace and health, um, the health and well-being agenda uh, to much fuller effect. So I, I, I just uh, maybe last um, recommendation is um, just a mantra that investing in employee well-being can really re lead and can have such huge results as increased resilience. And we have seen how resilience is so important uh, during COVID. Um, we will have, we know that we will have other pandemics coming. So increased re resilience, individual team resilience, or organizational resilience is so important. Reduced sickness absence, higher performance, productivity, uh, innovation, so many things that are linked to employee well-being. So I really think that, um, the employee well-being should be prioritized. It should be the priority number one, I think, as we, um, as we go into the next year. And I think um, it should be, as I was saying, integrated throughout an organization through multiple perspectives for it to be able to be embedded in its culture, leadership, and people management. The people managers and people profession is a unique position today. I think to drive forward this agenda. And I think also they are best positioned to convince leaders and people managers to make it a priority and uphold its importance. Thank you so much, Gazelle. I want to tell you both, Atrian and Gazelle, that it's been such a pleasure working with you 
this past year or so, um, one of the things I studied in looking at well-being of workers is that you really need to have a sense of purpose and meaning to your work. And I can just tell by listening to both of you and how you talk about your hopes for the future, that you're really passionate about your work and that you're really working hard to provide um, the members of the Alliance and the broader sector as a whole with key ways that there can be improvements in how we are delivering our work in alignment with our purpose to alleviate suffering and to support people at the center, but also just to, to do it in a very humane way as we deal with ourselves and struggle through, especially now times of COVID. So it's been a pleasure talking with you both, Adrienne and Gazelle. Thank you so much and uh, wishing you the best as you head into your next chapters. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for having us and um, all the best to you and everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Gazelle Balteva and Adrienne Marate. This is Embodying Change, a podcast about cultivating care and compassion in aid and development. The show is edited by Ziada Abayi. As we close the year and the season, I'd like to give a special shout out to the initiative's core supporters. The CHS Alliance, who's also our host, the Government of Luxembourg, the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, otherwise known as DFCO, ICFA, and soon the Netherlands. Thank you so much for making our work possible. If you enjoyed the show, you can help us in three ways. First, you can share the show with your people. Second, you can leave us a review to help others find us. And third, you can make suggestions for a future episode by emailing us at compassionate.org at chsalliance.org. We're open to your feedback and we're on the lookout for examples of good practice in the sector. We'll be back next year with another season of exploring care and compassionate aid and development. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.